Today on episode number 180 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Katie Linder and I talk about returning to the role of student. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today I get to welcome back to the show someone who today is a friend and a collaborator. Dr. Katie Linder is an avid writer and researcher with a passion for process and peeking behind the scenes at what it takes to be a successful academic. She currently hosts two weekly solo podcasts, You've Got This, and The Anatomy of a Book, I'm a huge fan of both, and a weekly interview podcast called Research in Action. And she also writes weekly essays. Her most recent book is the Blended Course Design Workbook, A Practical Guide. Although I'll be candid with you, she's a prolific writer. So by the time you listen to this, who knows, maybe there'll be another more current book out knowing her. Katie is also the director of the Oregon State University eCampus Research Unit and associate editor for the International Journal for Academic Development. Katie, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Bonnie, I always love talking with you. Thanks for having me back on the show. It's funny because we have had, ever since you came on the show, we just became friends and we've seen each other in person and we've had a chance to talk multiple times outside of podcasting land. So it's just been really fun to get to know you. And and today I'm excited about the conversation just about returning to being a student. I know you and I are really lifelong learners, but we've both had some experiences lately that are maybe a little bit different in terms of just professional development. So why don't you talk a little bit first about the kinds of things that you've been doing to return you back to a student role lately? Sure. So this is something I've talked a little bit about on my podcast as well. So if we have any cross listeners, they will know if they listen to You've Got This, that I have recently pursued um, coaching training. I've been doing coaching for quite some time in my faculty development background but had no credential. And so I've gone back into the classroom to explore what it means to be kind of officially credentialed as a coach. But also as I've been growing my small business, I've been investing in some online courses and just various different kinds of things that are allowing me to really learn from people who know these areas more than I do. So I'm definitely back in the role of a student and it's been super interesting and fun. I know you've been doing the same thing. What are some of the ways you've been doing this? Well, one of the ways is just through, and I I have talked about this on the show and through blogging, but I've been attending a lot of conferences. (laughs) So there were conferences that were here locally that I just didn't want to miss while they were here. You know, as far back as we went to the podcast movement conference together here in Anaheim, and then there was the open ed conference, which was also here and the digital media and learning conference. And then I also was honored to be able to be a keynote at a couple of other conferences and had a chance to sit in sessions there and get to hear such innovative things that people are doing. Conferences, of course, are a little bit different than what you and I have been doing, though, because they're at least some of what we've been doing is not norm, not in higher ed, and it's not a traditional way that we might see ourselves be exposed to learning opportunities. So one thing that I've done 
which I'm not done yet. (laughs) One that I'm halfway through is a creative live online course. And this is by my podcasting hero, one of one of a few. His name is Alex Bloomberg, and he has a wonderful storytelling course that is on the creative live platform. And oh my gosh, I've just been so enjoying getting to see someone who tells such beautiful stories through the podcasting medium and then just get to see some of the behind the scenes. I've been like a kid in the candy store with that one. And then there also is a Zoom class. I Many people, if you've been listening for a while, you might remember that I really like an online conferencing tool called Zoom. And this guy put together a Zoom class. And I find Zoom so easy to use that I hadn't really thought about that I needed a class on it necessarily. But it's one of those things that until you take a class, you don't realize what you didn't know. (laughs) So it's really easy to get started using Zoom. But there's all these amazing things you can do to automate some of the workflow in it. And then even, I have not taken this module yet, but even have a green screen behind you and put any background you want. I mean, there's just all these features I wasn't even aware were in this tool that I'm excited about learning more on. So I'm so glad you brought up Zoom and it's like broad capacities because this is actually the platform that my coaching training is in. And one of the things I didn't know about Zoom is that you can create breakout rooms and you can send people into breakout rooms. And I've only really used Zoom as kind of like a, a very similar to a Skype platform and didn't know that it had that capacity until I was in it. And I mean, it just makes me think about all the different tools that are out there for these kinds of online learning experiences. And of course, my full-time job is all about online teaching and learning and, and researching in that area. But we just don't know the capacity until sometimes we experience these tools from a student perspective. And then it gives us like a whole different mindset about how they could be used in our own classroom. So I just like I'm so glad you raised that, that we can look at we can become a student to become a better teacher. One of the things I know that this whole process has made you start thinking about is who are you as a learner? And could you talk a little bit about some of the observations you've had about you as a learner? Yeah, well, I mean, if I mean, I I would encourage like your listeners to think about when was the last time you were in a classroom? And I'm sure there are some people who are listening to the show who are grad students in the classroom, you know, and who are still kind of in that mode. But for me, it had been 10 years removed from being a grad student and actually taking classes and going through these different experiences of doing some like video courses and also some courses that came with audio and like workbook style things. It really did allow me to kind of go back and think about what are my preferences? Like, how do I like to learn? And what are the different ways that I can set up learning experiences for myself to really make sure I'm going to be successful? And it's also helped me to think a lot about how I help other people learn and how I can give them lots of different possibilities of how to experience content that I produce because people like to learn in different ways. So, I mean, that's, it's really got me thinking a lot about that and also about Uh, And I know we've certainly talked about this before, but like, how do we hold ourselves accountable? How do we like schedule these things in? How do we create structures for ourselves around learning? I mean, we know that the brain works with, you know, structures and chunking information and, you know, all that kind of thing. And when we turn the tables on ourselves and we become learners again, it's just front and center, like how much we need to package information to make sure we can really understand it in the ways that we want to. But I'm really curious too, what are you learning about yourself as a learner? Well, it cracks me up because to your last point, (laughs) what I'm learning about myself as a learner is I need a little more structure. There have been a number of courses. In fact, I just remembered that my husband recently invested. I mean, 
it was something like $29, but there's a, a text-based software that we use called Ulysses. And I use it for all the show notes. And I actually have started to do a lot of blog writing. It's a great tool. And just like with the Zoom course, when you buy a course on a tool that you rely on a lot, you discover a lot that it can do you didn't realize. But both of those courses have in common that there's no start date and there's no end date and there's no Oomph. Actually, the Zoom class, he does periodically email me. <laughs> you have completed 0% of your class, which is actually not true because I've just skipped around a lot. So I must not be triggering something to show that I finished one of the modules, even though I've watched a good portion of it. I, I just have been dancing around in there. There's no sense of urgency, which I think is okay. But what I'm realizing is I, I at the very bare minimum, should have within my task management system, it's got all my projects in it, I track my goals, I have my next actions, but what I don't have is one place where I could go that has these different courses in it. Even if I decide, it's not gonna be a huge deal if I don't do anything about that Zoom class until March of next year. You know, I, I teach on Zoom a couple times a year, I feel like I can get enough out of it that I don't need it, but I'm not really able to look holistically at all the possibilities of ways in which I could advance my knowledge in these different areas. I would have to go to a whole bunch of different places to <laughs> see what's there and to hold myself more accountable. And then also just thinking as course designers, I think I would want courses that I design to have a little bit more, whether that's a sense of community where you feel like other people are moving through it with you and you can exchange ideas, or at the very least, just something that moved learners along. So I, I think that you have a better method than I do right now, Katie, for how you're holding yourself accountable and building that structure. Well, I'm trying, like similar to what you said, I am trying to group things into one place so I at least know what is on the menu, like you said. And I did set a goal for myself this year to go through one of the courses I had purchased, similar to what you were saying about a particular product. It's a course on MailChimp, which is a kind of a newsletter platform that I use and an email platform. And like you have already described, like there were so many features I just didn't know. So I wanted to work my way through that in a diligent way. And I added it to kind of my annual goals list of what I wanted to do this year. And I've been slowly working my way through that. But I think that part of it is, you know, I've been thinking a lot about what does it mean to have a personal professional development plan, almost like a syllabus where you create for yourself, whether it's in a quarter, or, you know, a part of a term, like when you're teaching your classes for your students, you create your own syllabus for yourself. But what are the reading things that are, you know, what, what kind of readings do you have on that syllabus? What kind of videos are you wanting to watch? We collect all this stuff. And I think, like you said, it's okay to kind of bookmark it and set it aside until we have more time. But we do have to eventually kind of <laughs> structure it for ourselves and frame it in a way that actually makes sense. So this idea of like creating my own syllabus for my professional development and like creating themes around like what I want to, you know, totally geeking out about it, basically. I mean, like, I'm all about that. I'm totally ready to, to dive in and do that. So that's something I'm thinking about for 2018. I think it'd be really fun. I was thinking about a recent guest, Remy Kallir, talked about the marginal syllabus, and that's the social annotation around those who are marginalized, and it sounded so good. And then there's also Brian Alexander does this amazing book club, and he pulls out titles that are often on my list of books I wanted to read anyway, and some really brilliant people engage in that community. So I'd love to have this 
one place, like you said, a syllabus for myself. And then that just helps us prioritize. No, this is too much based on the timing of everything else. We've got to pull back, but we're being more purposeful and more holistic as we're making those plans for ourselves. That, that really seems like a good, a really good way of handling it. So I'm really curious, Bonnie, how you deal with going from a space of being an expert when you're in front of your students to being a student yourself and kind of the vulnerability of that and putting yourself back into that spot of not knowing things. How, how has that been for you? I think that one of the ways that this is easier for me now is through having done this podcast. I have had to be really vulnerable. In fact, <laughs> I was mentioning the episode with Remy Kalir, and I mispronounced a Nobel Prize winner three times on that episode. And our podcast editor, Andrew, was like, sorry, there's nothing I can do in the editing magic to take this out, but I don't think it's a big deal. But I'll regularly have where, no, I'm not perfect. I'm going to mispronounce people's names and I'm going to get things wrong. And But that ultimately, I think it just makes me better because many people have said they appreciate my vulnerability on the show because you, you can't, you know, Katie, <laughs> you can't do things like this and not be vulnerable and show that you indeed are not perfect. And so I think that's made me better, more, more able to just take a more playful approach with it when I don't know. And I do get really intrigued with how people teach and how they invite us in to welcome us to be vulnerable and, and place ourselves in the learner. And then I also get really intrigued by sequencing and like I was mentioning, skipping around on the Zoom class. That was really important to me because you had mentioned the breakout rooms. So I already know how to do that part, but I didn't know about this green screen thing. So just enabling learners to be able to be more self-directed just depending on what the type of course is. It just gets me thinking about that kind of thing. So I guess I guess I have been a little bit more indoctrinated about not knowing and, and being more comfortable with that and almost enjoying the process because I know it's going to make me ultimately be a better teacher. I get fascinated by it. I love that. Yeah, but there there are some, <laughs> there are certainly some areas where I still find myself saying, oh, I'm not good at that. And then that's that, you know, I'm not good at I don't have good spatial intelligence. You'll you'll hear me say that a lot. Oh, I'm not just not good at spatial intelligence and then staying away from all things that might expand my own mind about what I actually am capable of doing in a particular area like that. So I, I, I do find myself sometimes shutting down to, no, I, I don't want to quite go that far. How about you? Do you find yourself feeling vulnerable in these new learning experiences you're having? You know, I have always been a person kind of like you're saying, who is not afraid to just say, I don't know, or I don't know what that means. You know, like, can you help me figure that out? And I, I think especially like when I've been in situations where someone uses an acronym and, and everyone else seems to know what it is. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. I, I'll just come out and say it. However, I will say that, especially in this coaching training that I'm in, where we're practicing different coaching methods every week in this synchronous environment, we're all in Zoom together, kind of coaching each other to practice these different methods. And we're being graded on some of these assignments by master coaches who are, who are training us. And it's not necessarily the learning that makes me feel vulnerable, but it is definitely the grading that makes, like putting myself back in that position of having to demonstrate mastery over something and I think we're doing it actually a lot in our professional lives. I think about things like publishing, like getting a publishing contract is a form of credentialing and, and getting mastery and those kinds of things. But it's not like the feeling you get when you are being graded. And I think that for many of us, grades were 
the thing when we went through school. I mean, that was like all we were focused on. And that's what allowed us to get to where we are now with our, you know, PhDs in hand and all of that. So um, that is a vulnerable space for me to be back in that mode of, of like having a rubric being applied to my work. And that is a huge lesson for me in terms of just like, what does it mean for our students that they're going through this all the time? And we treat it, you know, grading is something I think we kind of dread and we're like not super into it. And it's such a powerful thing for our students and how they're interacting with us. And so, yeah, I've been thinking about that quite a bit. I've been sitting here trying not to laugh the entire time you're talking because I think you just hit on the thing for me. I was realizing that I recently went and did the, we, we have to, I don't know if it's every two years or every year, we have to take the sexual harassment prevention and then the FERPA basics. And that it's about a three hour deal when all is said and done. And if I get one question wrong, I'm like, oh my gosh, like even though passing, I think might be something like 80%. I have no, it, it's not like I'm not going to pass, but I, I start thinking, oh my gosh, they're going to see that. And then what if they think that I don't really know this stuff and my background is partially in human resources, so I really should know this stuff. I hadn't really thought about that distinction of being graded and that I really have not been, the closest that I have done is, you and I know, of course, me, me writing a book and you working on this book series that, that getting feedback from people and having it reviewed, but even that's not the same thing because... I get feedback often on all types of work that I do, but that whole being graded, it really does seem distinct from the rest of what we're talking about. Well, I think it has an evaluative aspect to it. Like when you're assigned a number, you know, like that's a very different thing than having someone say, oh, well, you could you consider this thing about your writing or what about this or what about that and kind of offering you different options. I think as a writer, when you get feedback, you're still in the driver's seat about, you know, what you have in control over that. And especially when you're working with an editor and you and I have this relationship where I'm editing this series that you're writing for, we have a relationship of trust where we're both trying to create a product that is going to be good for the reader. Like we're both kind of moving in the same direction. Whereas I think sometimes with grades and evaluation, you think it's more of an adversarial relationship where someone is gatekeeping you from getting the thing that you want, (laughs) whether it's a a good grade or a credential or passing, you know, a particular thing. And it doesn't always feel like a partnership, even though from a teaching perspective, we probably think about it that way quite a bit. But I wonder sometimes what our students are thinking, and they are really kind of pushing back because maybe it doesn't feel that way to them. I've talked on recent shows about this open textbook project that my doctoral students are going through. And until you just said that, Katie, I hadn't really considered this, but they know that this is my first time writing a open textbook with students. And that that I don't feel like it's at all negated my credibility because I have so much already to offer. <laughs> I think it's actually helped them feel more like we're partners and there's less of this, you're constantly judging me and I'm not good enough in technology sort of feeling. And, but I just realized we've been working on it now for a few weeks and we're pretty deep into at least the first model chapter that then the other chapters will go off of and we have an outline and no one has asked a single thing about how are we going to be graded on this? It's not, it's not in the syllabus because again, the, we, we did sort of a more of a collaborative syllabus. They know that the assignments there, they know how many points it's worth, but no one has said a thing about that. Because we're all just doing this together. I will be, I am a co-author with them. I am helping them on different chapters. And then, but they also know there's some chapters 
I know less about because they're in K through 12. And this is more of a K through 12 geared book. And I can help really a lot in these areas, but we'll need to get other people to assist. So it's kind of interesting just to think about that dynamic. I know recently I saw a post by Jesse Stommel, and he wrote about why he stopped grading. And he brings in some of these themes. And I'll post a, a link to that in the show notes. And I also plan on inviting him to come back on the show because it's been way too long. So maybe he'll come and talk to us about why he stopped grading and we can hear more about that. Yeah, that's a really interesting distinction. Well, and I also just interviewed someone. The episode hasn't been released yet, but for research in action, and maybe we can post it after it's out into the show notes. So yep. if people want to circle back. But I talked with someone about writing assessment as anti-racist practice. And it opened my mind in all kinds of ways as to how we're grading writing. And this was someone who had also done research on working with grading contracts instead of, you know, other kinds of forms of assessment. So it's a it's going to be a fascinating episode, but maybe we can link to that too for folks. Oh, absolutely. Katie, all of this, when it comes to who we are as learners, the vulnerability that it takes, what it's like to be graded and assessed, and some of the structure needs that we have. All of this really gets us to think really deeply about what it means to be a teacher. What are some of the themes that you have found about what it means for you to be a teacher or actually what it means for other people to be a teacher as well, the the role of teacher? I think that sometimes as teachers, we can get wrapped up in all of our own stuff of like prepping and making sure we look like we know what we're talking about. And, you know, like we get kind of in our own minds about all of it. And I feel like returning to being a student, it helps you to have empathy for what your students are going through and what they're trying to do. And and just the fact that learning is hard, you know, like this is not easy to do. Like what we're asking them to do every day in our classrooms is actually really challenging work. And so I, I think that the theme of empathy is one that is really coming through for me as I'm doing these different learning experiences and really trying to push myself. So I would say empathy and also a a second theme is motivation of just what is it taking for me as a learner to do this? And I would say at this point, after going through years and years and years and years of being in the classroom, I'm a relatively sophisticated learner and that I understand how I learn well and I understand my preferences and I, I feel like I have this extra layer of knowing how the brain works and things like that. But I also still have to really know how to motivate myself. And I know that motivation is such a challenging component. It's the question I get all the time from faculty that I work with. How do we motivate our students to learn, especially when they are not motivated by the same things that we are? So I think empathy and motivation would be my two themes. What about you? I definitely concur on the empathy point that anytime we put ourselves in the role of learner, we are being reminded of what that is like. And especially those times when we're graded, like you talked about the vulnerability that's there, you're making me realize I probably should do that more in some way. Can I, can I go find some opportunities that are a little bit more high pressure than what I currently have been putting myself under? Cause they're all just, me taking it in and then doing something with it. And actually, if you think about all the examples that I gave there, unless I go out and seek it, there isn't the feedback coming back to me even to know if I'm able, like you talked about the coaching. I'm, I'm familiar with what you're describing, not, not the specific coaching program, but just that feeling where you're learning a model and questions can be quantified as it's this kind of question. I should say qualified. It's this kind of question or this kind of question or this 
that's a very precise skill that you're building that people can give very precise feedback on. And I haven't really been putting myself in quite as many positions like that. So as I look at and think about my own syllabus for my own professional development, perhaps I can find ways to do that a little bit more than I am currently. And I think ultimately, I talked about this before, but just thinking about sequencing and how people navigate through courses, there's a lot that I reflect on as I go through these things. And in fact, this actually might tie us really nicely to the recommendation segment because one course that I didn't talk about, but that I have began is one that was developed by you and you have a, a recent, gosh, I can't even imagine how long it took you to make, but you have a recent addition to the things that you're able to offer us as we want to pursue our own professional development and I've had such a great experience. And that was one of the reasons I said, hey, Katie, you want to come back on the show? Because I'd love to have you share this opportunity with other people so that they can be able to promote their own books. And I just wanted to pass it over to you now to talk about your new course. Sure. So the talk about like a learning experience. Academics are not trained at all in book marketing, <laughs> unless they're going through like an MBA program or something like that, which I certainly did not do myself. And so the last time I was on the show was actually around the time that my second book came out on blended course design for people who listened to that episode. And it was a huge learning curve for me to figure out how to talk about that book, how to find the right audiences for it, how to make sure that it was really helping the people that I meant for it to help. And throughout that whole time, I was just kind of gathering information like blog posts, books, you know, podcast episodes, all the things that I was trying to gather to help me figure out how to promote this book. And as I talked with more and more academics and academic authors, what I realized was nobody knew what they were doing. And we were all just kind of experimenting and looking for guidance, basically. And so what I decided to do was create a course on academic book promotion to help people have a step-by-step guide to really create their personalized book promotion plan if they were trying to do this and, and really intentionally try to do it in a purposeful way. So it's called the Academic Book Promotion Toolkit, and I launched it this month. So this is November of 2017 as we record this. And the course um, is available. We'll link to it in the show notes. And this month, I'm actually doing a, a couple of promotional offers. There is a discount to the course that's available, $100 off. But there's also a, a nice tie-in with the webinar series I'm running right now on writing and publishing, which is called How to Academia. And I'm offering basically, if you buy the course for full price, you get access to that webinar series. And that runs throughout the rest of the year into May of 2018. So this is one of those things that I wish I had. I, it's a course and a professional development opportunity that I was seeking and could not find. And whenever I see a gap like that, I imagine there are other people who need it too. So I did spend the last like six to eight months pulling this thing together. You know, there's over 30 video modules and tutorials and all these supplementary resources. I made an ebook out of the content to make sure people could really get the content in whatever way they wanted. So it's, it's been super fun to put together and I'm excited to share it with folks. So we will definitely link to this in the show notes so people can take a look and I'm happy to email with people and answer questions about it. But um, it's uh, my way of giving back to people who want to do their own professional development. Because like you said, Bonnie, we're lifelong learners. So I love to contribute to that huge, massive things that are out there that we all don't have enough time <laughs> to really work our way through, but we want to. So I was glad to give it to you too, since you're going to be working on promoting your book soon. Oh, yeah. Dave and I have this friend who was a professor of ours when we were getting our doctorates, and he had written a book 
I don't even know how many years ago it was now, but he said between the time he wrote his first book and then five years later when he wrote his most recent book, he said the entire world changed. Yes. The entire world. Every every possible way he could describe it, whether it's the publishers are no longer saying, okay, well, you've written the book. Now you can settle back on your couch and put your feet up and wait for the royalty checks to come in. They really are looking for partners in the promotion. I mean, at least you know a lot more about this than I do, but just hearing this friend talk, I really do recognize the need for something like this for people who write books. It it just doesn't seem to be working anymore to be able to find a publisher who's going to do this, all of this for you. They might do parts of some pieces of it, but most of them, they're really looking to you to be able to promote this book and actually be able to articulate back to them how you plan on doing that. Yeah, I think that's a surprise to a lot of new academic authors that in your book proposal, you are expected to talk about marketing and you're expected to talk about your platform, basically, how many people are following you on social media, what's your network, how many conferences are you attending where you might talk about the book. And I think people are really surprised by that because there is this assumption that publishers are going to kind of roll out the red carpet for your book and take care of a lot of that for you. And even in the trade publishing world, it's not happening very much. And authors are having to underwrite their own, you know, book tours and things like that. So, I mean, I think that this is one of those areas where part of what actually gave me the idea for the course was I was talking with my publisher, our publisher, Bonnie and I have the same publisher and the promotions person there who I partner with quite a bit. And she said that 75% of the authors they work with don't promote their own books because they don't know how. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's not anything more than that. It's just people, as I talked with people and as they saw how I was promoting the book, I got a lot of people asking me like, how do you do that? And it's actually not that difficult. It just takes some time to pull together all the resources to figure out how to organize a virtual book tour or how to create a podcast around your book or something like that. So, I mean, I wanted to put it all in one place. And I think that you're so right, Bonnie, that like the landscape of this keeps changing. And with all these new technology tools, social media and different possibilities of how you can do these things more easily and more inexpensively, the possibilities just keep growing of how you can talk to people about your book and, and marketing it to all different kinds of audiences. Well, Katie, I've had such a fun time looking at putting ourselves in the role of student and all the benefits that can come out of that. And also to get to share with the audience about the academic book promotion toolkit. And I can't wait to see if people show some interest and, and get access. And I'm just looking forward to myself digging back in there, getting it on my list of things to be regularly going and seeking out new learning opportunities from. And thanks, to, thanks so much for coming back on the show today, Katie. Thanks for having me, Bonnie. It's always such a pleasure to talk with you. I'm so grateful for Katie and all that I've been able to learn from her. And I hope that you got to learn a thing or two from her today as well. Please go check out her podcasts if you want to hear more. They will be available at the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 180. And if you have yet to subscribe to the weekly email, all the links to the things that Katie and I talked about can come into your inbox without you having to remember to go get them. The subscription is at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And when you subscribe, you'll also get a free ebook with 19 tools that'll help you facilitate learning for your students and also improve your personal productivity. Thanks for listening. If you've yet to write a review for the show, this is the time to go and do it so you can help other people discover it. And thanks to those who have recently written a review. I really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time.